0: raise your hand if you think you're an ambassador most of you wouldn't have trouble raising your hand but if i said raise your hand if you think you're a priest you know you realize the bible does say that about you that it's the priesthood of all believers that i happen to have this gift but you happen to have a gift that you're supposed to employ for the kingdom of god Today, today, today with Jeff Vines. Hello, I'm Bill, and thanks for joining me on Today with Jeff Vines. Today, Pastor Jeff's message is about friends in hard times. Of course, the book of Job has plenty for us on this topic. Other scripture in the Bible also shows that God uses trials to help us be his ambassadors and to draw people to God. Here's Pastor Jeff to explain more. God's doing some amazing things in our church this season. And we've talked about that we want to be God's ambassadors, that we want to, we want to be uh, not only communicators in what we say, but in the way we live and how we respond to every circumstance of life. We said that we are the ambassadors of God as though God's making his appeal through you and me. We are not elected by the people, we're called of God. Now, I want to bring something and juxtaposition it right beside this idea of ambassadorship. Uh, I want to know how many of you have friends? That's good to hear. I got two different sets. I've got one friend that every time I'm around him, I'm on cloud nine. He's just one of those guys that brings everything up, up, and upper. He's the kind of guy that will say, hey, you've been working out. You know, it's his way of saying, you look great. How about that sermon on Sunday? That was awesome. I saw your wife. She looks happy. Your children, they look fulfilled. Everything he says, by the time you leave, it's like, man, I love this guy. I always walk away feeling fantastic. And then as I was writing the sermon, I thought about another friend I had. And as I wrote it, I wondered why I still have him as a friend. <laughs> because he's the kind of guy... That when you walk away, you're just depressed. You have any friends like that? You know, they they have a subtle way of saying things to you. They'll say something like, you haven't been able to work out lately, have you? You know, hey, your wife looks really sad. Any marriage problems there? Your kids look depressed. You know, they look like there's no meaning or hope in their lives. Everything okay at home? And he's the kind of guy who say, man, that sermon you preached last week was really good. I just have a few things. And a few things last like for an hour. And by the time you walk away from him, you're thinking, man, I'm I'm a loser. I just, why do I even live my life? Why am I even breathing, taking up space? (laughs) Every one of us knows. we we know that the people with whom we fellowship with, that, that circle that we hang out with dramatically affects the type of people that we're becoming. And here's why that's important. If you're going to be an ambassador, if I ask you, raise your hand if you think you're an ambassador, most of you wouldn't have trouble raising your hands. But if I said this, if I said, raise your hand if you think you're a priest, you'd think of something like, well, man, I'm a priest? You, know, you realize the Bible does say that about you. That I am in no higher position than you are. That it's the priesthood of all believers. That I happen to have this gift, but you happen to have a gift that you're supposed to employ for the kingdom of God. So the Bible says that you are an ambassador, that you are a priest of God. And it also teaches you that if you're going to be the best ambassador you can be, and the best priest that you can be, as though God were making his appeal through you and me, that he is going to have to train and equip you as a priest. And if you read the scriptures, God's primary tool for equipping you as, a, as an ambassador or a priest is pain which means there are times in your life when God's going to pick up the pen and write a story. And the chapter, some of the chapters about your life are going to be a little bit painful because that is his best tool for equipping you to be an ambassador who has a compelling story. Think about it. Why do you know the story of the Red Sea? Because it's a story of deliverance. Why do you know the story of the walls of Jericho? It's a story of deliverance. Why do you know the story of Jesus walking on the water? Because it's a story of deliverance. Stories of deliverance are compelling. Therefore, since you have agreed to be a priest or an ambassador of God, he's going to write some stories into your life so that you would have a compelling story of the power of deliverance through the Spirit of God, and in doing so, Those who are on the outside looking in are going to look at you and be compelled and drawn toward your deliverer. Now, here's the problem with this. We're not very good at helping each other in times of crisis. And depending on your circle of friends, if you have the friends around you that will not just tell you what you want to hear, but actually want you to become a great ambassador, a great priest then they're going to speak a certain language and they're going to push you on toward that. But if you've got friends that are just looking for a loophole, then chances are when you encounter difficult circumstances, they're going to do whatever they can or say whatever they can to help you get out of them and you're going to tuck and run. In which point, God will not be able to use you and create the compelling story that would draw those on the outside in. That is a hard message to hear. So here's what I want to do. I want to take you back to a story that most of you know again. It's a story of deliverance, but in a different way, it's a story of Job. And I want to show you how Job's friends had a lot to do with Job's demeanor and how he responded in difficult times, and then show you that although they messed it up to a great degree, they did so many things well. Actually, that's not true. They did one thing really well, and that forgave a multitude of sins. All right, so you know the book of Job. i mean, Job chapter one and two. I'll get to verse 18 in a moment of chapter one. Let me kind of summarize it for you. Imagine this is the day you just had. You're wealthy, you got a lot of stuff, you got a lot of servants, you got a lot of kids and suddenly you're having dinner with your family, with some of the members of your family and in comes a servant and the servant says, Master, I'm here to tell you that the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding and the Sabians fell upon them and killed them all. So all your oxen and all your donkeys are dead along with the servants and I'm the only one survived to tell you. That's tough enough, but as soon as he's finished speaking, the next servant comes in. Uh, Master, Job, I'm here to tell you uh, that the Chaldeans formed a group and they struck down all your camels and all your servants and I'm the only one survived to tell you. So in a matter of minutes, he's lost his donkeys, his oxen, and he's lost his camels and his servants. And then right on the hills of the second service, the third servant comes in and he says, master, I'm just here to tell you that the fire of God, he's probably referring to lightning, lightning came down and struck the enclosure where all your sheep were. They're all caught on fire. They're all consumed as well as all the servants that were tending them. And I'm the only one surviving, so I'm here to tell you. And then, think about that now. In a matter of a short period of time, he's lost all of his oxen, his donkeys. He's lost his sheep, his servants, his camels. And now here's the worst news of all. There's a fourth servant that appears. This is in verse 18. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people. They are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you. So he's lost his donkeys, his camels, his servants, his sheep. And now he's lost 10 of his children. That's a pretty bad day. Wouldn't you think? That's the makings of a good country song. <laughs> my wife left me. My truck broke down. My dog was killed. My kids voted Democrat. I mean, what else could happen <laughs> all in one session? <laughs> now, the reality is right here in the room, we have people who are modern day Jobs and they're seated all around you. They'll just never tell you. Last Sunday after the third service on Sunday morning, I walked over to my car, I parked over the youth house. There was a gentleman in a truck waiting on me. And as soon as he saw me, he jumped out of his truck. And it was an aggressive confrontation. But as time went on, and I continued to speak to him, he's a good guy. He's okay. His life is a wreck. He doesn't know what to do. He's lost his means of income. He doesn't know if he's going to be homeless. His wife is dying. And his daughter was just diagnosed with the same disease from which his wife is dying. So that a short period of time, he's a modern day Job. He was aggressive with me because he doesn't know where to turn. It's Theos us, the God who hides himself. Because he feels God's not listening and he feels the people of God aren't listening. I ask him, where are your friends? And this entered a long dialogue. He feels that they've all left him, deserted him because it's too hard to deal with him. The way we respond to people today who are modern-day Job's is the same way Job's friends respond to him and we've got to get better at this and the reason we have to get better at this is it's inextricably tied together with the type of person an ambassador and priest that we're becoming and we can't shoot our own wounded We've got to get involved in each other's lives. I mean, Job chapter 2, verse 11. Job's friends hear of his predicament. Here's what happens. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles they had come upon him, that is Job, they set out from their houses and homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. So here's what happens. They hear about Job's predicament. It's a pretty nasty story. They all say, let's meet down at the cafe. We'll get our plan together and we'll go visit Job. Now, when they first arrive, they're brilliant, because they don't say anything. As long as they're quiet, things are going well. It's when they start to talk that things go south rather quickly, and they say the same things that we're still saying today, thousands of years after the story was written. Let me show you what happens. Bill, Dad is the first. He speaks. He's listened to Job say, "God, if you'll just explain why this is happening." If you'll just tell me how you're going to eventuate all of this out for some grand design or grand plan, if you'll just explain that to me and I can see it clearly, I think then I will be able to endure this. Bildad is supposed to be Job's friend, but here's the problem with Bildad. Seeing Job like this has turned Bildad's theology on its head because in Job's day and Bildad's theology goes like this. If you're good, God blesses you. If you're bad, he curses you. But we've already been told in chapter 1 of the book of Job that Job is a righteous and blameless man. So Bildad, when he sees Job in this predicament, can't harmonize a theology that says if you're good, you're blessed. If you're bad, you're cursed with the life Job has lived and with what he's presently going through. So what does he do? Here's his response. He says, Job, your words are a blustering wind. He says, Job, you're a windbag. What a nice friend. (laughs) I mean, Job's just poured out his heart, and his friend says, You're a win back. Why does he respond like that? Because Job's pain has inconvenienced Bildad. And Bildad's theology's been turned on its head, so he does the only thing he knows to do just takes a cheap shot at Job to make himself feel better. Have you ever been in a discussion with somebody, probably your mother in law, and you've been in a (laughs) discussion, and you know you've come to the point of the argument where you're right, and you know you're right, and you know that she sees that you're right by the look in her eyes, but you also know that she's so stubborn, she's not going to admit it. So rather than come back with an objective argument against the thesis, which you've just presented, she just takes a cheap shot at you. Anybody ever done that? You know, something like, oh yeah, well, your mom is ugly and your kids are stupid. You know, it has nothing to do with the objective argument. It's just a cheap shot. Job understands what Bildad says, so he responds in chapter 8. Now, this is a vast chapter, so you're going to have to let me rush through here. Bildad then says to Job, Ask the former generations and find out what their fathers learned, for we were born only yesterday and know nothing. Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? This is an old-day platitude. You know what a platitude is? Platitude is something we memorize to say that we hope will make somebody feel better, but it really doesn't. Let me give you the modern-day translation of Job 2, or Job 8, 2, verses 8 through 10, all right? Everything happens for a reason. You ever been told that? You ever been told that? Does it make you feel any better? When somebody tells me that, I want to slap them and then say, what's the reason that happened? (laughs) Yeah, there's a reason that your five-year-old daughter got hit by a driver, because he drank too much. He was drunk and ran over your little girl. Don't blame God for that. as though somehow God orchestrated that event in the heavens. We do a lot of dumb things and then say everything will work out or everything happens for a reason. Yeah, because you did something stupid, man. And there's no cure for stupid. Most of the things that happen, evil, pain, suffering in our world, come as a result of what we do to each other. I know that God can take everything that happens in our life, and this is to me the greater miracle he can connect all the dots, no matter how bad our decisions, he takes all those decisions over time and brings them all out to achieve his good and perfect will. I know God is able to do much more than we could ever ask for. Imagine, I know that he can take everything and work together for good. I got that, but that's different than saying God is the first cause of every event that happens in this planet. Job hears that. And part of Bildad's argument is good. Later on, he's going to say, look at Moses. Moses spent... 40 years in the wilderness, Job. 40 years. But Moses needed the wilderness to truly encounter God. I get that, and that's true. He's going to say, consider Joshua and the huge, massive walls that were felled by the power of God. Yes, I understand that Joshua needed the battle to experience the power of God. I get that too. He's going to say, check out the Israelites in the Red Sea. Had they not ever experienced this tragedy from Egypt... And this bondage and slavery, they never would have known what it is to experience the miraculous power of God in the parting of the Red Sea. All of that I get. But here's the problem when we use that argument only with people. Usually, whatever God's going to do to work all this out to good, you'll be dead by the time it happens. (laughs) You read stories. Great stories. This happened 200 years ago. And this happened to this person's life and he didn't know why. But 200 years later, these good things happen. Well, the problem is, he's dead. So while it's a It's a good reminder. It's not going to give the ultimate comfort that people need when they're in the midst of great difficulty. And that's why here's how Job responds in chapter 9, verse 33. He says, he doesn't say, that is a great argument, I feel better. He says, if only there were someone to arbitrate between God and me. Job is saying, I don't need a spiritual lecture. I don't don't need somebody to come and, and tell me about the past. What I need is to know that there's somebody in my life right now that's pleading my case before the throne of God. Can you just come and sit with me and do that? I just need to know that there's an arbitrator, that there's somebody going before the throne and saying, God, please have mercy on my servant Job. Can you just do that on my behalf? And if you do that on my behalf, rather, then I will be comforted knowing that I'm not alone. It's Job's way of saying, don't try to tell me That you know why all this is happening to me. You're not God. You're not that smart. I just need to know. I just need to know that you'll go on my behalf before God. You know this Hebrew word that they're going to go and they're going to spend time. They're going to sympathize with Job. And then there's a word that's used that's the same word we use in English for picketing. It's translated if there's someone to arbitrate. Be an arbitrator between me and God. You know what? what the, the, The word picture is this. Job says, I just want to know that somebody has a sign and they're picketing the throne of God and they're saying, no, no, let Job go. No, no, let Job go. No, and I, I want to know, like, I got like 10 people doing that. No, no, let Job go. He says, if I can just know that, then that's a good beginning to the healing that I need. So he walks away, Eliphaz, he's the oldest. He comes next, he's the kindness. Remember, Job has lost everything. Now, this is my favorite part of the story. Job's lost it all. His kids, his sheep, his cattle, everything. He has nothing. And he's got these sores all over his body that he's in so much pain that when his friends see him, we'll show this in a moment, they're just devastated. They can't can't say anything because they just don't recognize him. Imagine you're Job and you've lost everything and one of your Christian brothers or sisters says this to you. You ready? Job 4. A spirit glided past my face and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? What's going on here? I think I've given this example before. Let me give it to you now, and this will help you understand the words of Eliphaz to Job and why they're a miserable failure. When I was in seminary, I had a professor by the name of Dr. Jack Cottrell. Brilliant man spoke in monotone, but his words were so powerful he could make you cry. Because he felt if you're going to be a preacher of the gospel, you better understand the book of Romans well. And so we spent an entire year, three hours, twice a week, studying one book. When test time came around, Dr. Cotter wanted to make sure that you understood what we had covered for the past year. And so he would hand out these little blue packets that had page after page in it, and he would give you 10 essay questions. You were to choose three, and you were to write an hour on each question. So the exam lasted three hours. And you better know what you're talking about. We had this one guy in our class, and I'm sure none of you college students do this anymore, but it's called padding. Padding is when you don't study, you're a little little bit lazy, So what do you do? You choose three that you're remotely interested in and you pad, you just write everything you know that's even remotely related to the topic in hopes that somewhere along the line you will start to hint toward the truth. So you write and you write and you write and you write and you write just hoping you'll get lucky somewhere in something you said and the professor will think, okay, he knows the answer. When this guy got his test paper back, One of the most humorous experiences I've ever had, Dr. Cottrell had written in red ink on the front of the paper, this is not right, this is not even wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Do you get that? To say that something is wrong is to assume that something meaningful has been said. But if what you said is not meaningful, this is not right, this is not even wrong. (laughs) This is what Job replies. How do you argue with that? How's this supposed to help me? A spirit glided past my face, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. This is, this is what happens when people say, brother, I have a word of the Lord from you, or for you rather. See, that way, they're really gonna tell you, and I'm not all the time, and I do believe in God speaking to us through each other. I'm just simply saying, sometimes we use that as an authoritative sentence To somehow force the other person to listen to us because we're inconvenienced by their pain. And what we end up doing is saying something like that and following it it with what we wanted to say all along. Because what he says to Job basically is this in the last two lines. Job, this is happening to you because you're a bad sinner. That's the only way he can harmonize his bad theology with what's happening with Job. Job is very frustrated and his response comes in Job chapter 6. He says, if only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. A despairing man should have the devotion of his friends. Job says, Eliphaz, you're severely underestimating how much pain I'm in. You think you can solve it with some mystical experience or philosophical argument. I'm telling you that my problem, my suffering is much more complex. And besides that, no matter if I'm struggling so much that I've lost it, that I've gone crazy, a real friend would stick by me. And then Job responds in Job 6, 24. Teach me and I will hold my peace and cause me to understand. What's he saying? Now, this is is important. Here's what Job is saying. Same thing you do. God... If you will show me why I am suffering this way and you will give me an explanation for all the things that are happening around me and you show me how this is going to work out, God, if you'll give me an exhaustive explanation for all of this, then I think I can be able to man up and endure it. And that's Job's plea. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. So when your kingdom starts falling apart, here's what you say. Maybe not out loud, but down deep inside, you say, God, I've done everything You've asked me to, and this is the life I get. I could get this mess on my own. I was faithful to my husband, God, and he still cheated on me. So God, if this is the way You operate, I'm gonna try life on my own. You can listen to more messages like this just search for today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me wanna dance and sing. With every single breath I free I will break this offering. You are my wonder, you make the wonder. Today, 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 today with Jeff Vines.